anybody there? It seems I'm all alone again. Does anybody care? This planet's empty. I see no signs of life. Please don't tell me that the human race did not survive. There are no people in the future. There are no people. There are no people in the future. No people at all. There are no people in the future. Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future. Let me try my people call. Hey everybody, 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 welcome, welcome. Yes, it is Monday, April 10th, 2020, 2023. <laughs> welcome to Raging Chickens, to Coop Live. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. On Out to Coop Live, we talk to progressives, activists, and troublemakers of all sorts, right from our own backyards and across the country, or that there's nights like tonight. We're actually doing kind of like a Monday politics roundup. Uh, as uh, listeners to the show know, we did not have a Friday politics roundup, and I forgot to tell everybody that we are not going to have a Friday politics roundup. That's because half of my brain thought we were having it, and the other half of my brain knew that we couldn't because it was a holiday weekend, and my kids had off, and a whole bunch of stuff, and we were, you know, whatever, whatever. You know the drill. You know the drill. Anyways. You can also join us at the end of the week for our Friday politics roundup, normally, <laughs> where we can break down the good bad where we break down the good, bad, and the ugly of state national politics. We'll do a little of that tonight. And you can get all our shows by subscribing to us on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. And you can support this show and all our podcasts by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash RC Press right now. Got a couple minutes. Do that. You can also help out the show by heading over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for the show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time that we go live. And if you're one of our podcast listeners, make sure you leave us that five-star review. Let other people know why you listen to the podcast. It helps other people find the show. For more PA Progressive Talk, tune into the Rick Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern, his YouTube channel, Twitter, or Facebook, wherever you get your streams. And subscribe to his podcast wherever you get your podcast. Head on over to the ricksmithshow.com for the latest across all his platforms. And if you haven't already, you got to check out the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast. The amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast rock the house. And you know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. And follow their podcast on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcast. And you know, it's happening. The Signal. Yes, The Signal is a new podcast from the Bucks County Beacon. The Signal is hosted by the Beacon's editor-in-chief, Cyril Michaleko, and produced by yours truly. Twice a month, The Signal shines a light on the right-wing extremist currents streaming through Bucks County and beyond. Cyril invites guests who can provide insight, analysis, and organizing solutions so that we can steer the community for calmer, saner, progressive roots. And a new episode of The Signal just dropped last Wednesday, and it was a good one. As Cyril actually said at one point, that's horrifying. <laughs> it's true. Cyril interviewed Jeff Charlotte to talk about his new book, The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War and the Growing Fascist Threat in American Democracy. You check it out at thebuckscountybeacon.podbean.com. Um, it's a great show. Got to go listen to it, everybody. 
And for all you gamers out there, the Game Inn is a Quickertown-based Black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show, and they've got everything for Retro N64s, the latest consoles, video games for all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, balls of Funko Pops. And kids get discounts when they get A's of the report cards. How do you beat that? Check them out on their Facebook page and follow them on Twitter at, at the Game Inn. That's with two N's. If you've got a question about a game, look for something hard to get, shoot them a message or drop them an email at thegameinpa at gmail.com. And a shout-out goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page. And follow him on Twitter at, at @songadayman. That's two N's, at @songadayman on Twitter. And we can't let Paul Martino's oligarch friends buy our schools and push extremist politics in our community. Raging Chicken has teamed up with Levelfield to launch a truly community-rooted PAC to invest in organizing, supporting local and statewide progressive candidates, and unmasking the toxic organizations injecting our communities with right-wing extremism. We're putting small-dollar donations to work to beat back the power of big money. You can get more information and drop your donation at ragingchicken.levelfield.net. And on tonight's show, now some of the things we'll take a look at. A new report from ProPublica exposes Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's secret luxury trips from mega-donor Harlan Crow. And Thomas never disclosed the gifts as required by law. How about that? Yep. Republican media was freaking out and crying all over the place, wondering why people are being so mean to billionaires and, and their minions, and, and if we don't stick up for billionaires, who will? <laughs> And Texas House Republicans expelled two black representatives for protesting guns. Yeah, we're watching that unfold all week. And we say slow fall into demagoguery and fascism. I don't know how to see. There you go. No. Well, things just don't get any better for the Catholic Church. That's right. New report um, on the Baltimore Diocese released last week shows that more than 150 priests sexually abused more than 600 children over 80 years. The church knew and covered it up. Not just a couple of bad apples. This is why systemic reform, I'd say more than reform at this point, but why we have to look at systems, not just random individuals. Crazy. And new court rulings look to ban the abortion medic, uh, um, medication uh, mefepristone. I always miss, I just can't say that. I'm so tired tonight, too. <clears throat> and as two cases are likely headed to the Supreme Court. Oh, yes, Kirsten. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, indeed. Uh, yes, Ashley Ahas has already kind of announced that she will be running again. Yes, she is running again against Brian Fitzpatrick for the Pennsylvania 1st Congressional District. Um, getting out there early this time. Um, she had a strong running last time and she has thrown her hat in already. Getting ready to hit the ground running. Thank you, Kirsten, for throwing that one in. And Gene Kwok, author of Central Buck's newly banned, sorry, challenged book, Girl in Translation, is headed to the school board to contest the board's move. That's right. Authors are starting to show up. <laughs> Saying, what, what are you doing? Wait, my personal biography, you're banning this? Like, that was my story, and the, you're going to ban that? Wait a minute, I'm coming. At Perky Omen Valley students staged a walkout to protest new moves to ban books at their schools. And Kutztown University joins in the austerity game, putting four programs in moratorium, including Spanish, philosophy, German, and Spanish education. Well, because, number one, why the heck would you need Spanish in kind of a... Uh, kind of, uh, 
in a growing kind of uh, Latinx population throughout the Lehigh Valley in Berks County. Huh? Oh. Especially when the strategic plan of Kutztown University says that Kutztown University is supposed to be a go-to place for Latinx students. But you're going to get rid of that. And what do you need philosophy for? I mean, who needs to think? <laughs> right? And if you might as well get rid of philosophy, I mean, get rid of Spanish, you got to rid of Spanish education, of course. And German. That's right. No German to be taught in Pennsylvania. State systems, schools. Entire eastern part of the state. That's great. That's just great. We got all that and so much more. I mean, God, we go on and on and on this week, um, but we're going to stick to some of those things tonight. Um, I did want to kind of, uh, you know, uh, kind of wait another week to get into this stuff. Um, it was uh, Easter weekend, Easter break. Um, spring break is my kid's school. Designates it. Uh, spent some time in Philadelphia on Friday at the Constitution Center. Went to Betsy Ross house. That was kind of cool. Um, I do have to say, though, the Constitution Center, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm, look, first of all, I'm all for it. You know, I just want to say that. Um, but uh, it's really interesting. We went and we, you know, sat for, there's a, I don't know, 15-minute program that they put on there, kind of talking about the history of the, you know, establishment of the Constitution and so on like this. I mean, you kind of know what to expect going into something like that. But what's fascinating to me is that, the it's going to be really interesting to see what happens kind of like in the coming years um with um yeah in the coming years with um how they tell the story of like the American Revolution and the Constitution and so on right and i don't just mean the facts right because what what's interesting is that you know they they've done a um the presentation, you know, acknowledged the, uh, you know, taking the land. If, you know, if it wasn't as clear on the genocide thing, say, well, taking the land and committing genocide against Native peoples, right? Kind of indigenous peoples. Um, and then it talks about slavery, right? And talks about that and kind of the growth of slavery. But what's, you know, so, so it's, it's not kind of like a complete blind eye, right, to that history. Right. And does highlight the kind of like struggle for change and one of the strengths of a kind of a democracy and so on. But what's interesting to me is that I think that the the story is still presented like in terms of how it's acted out. There's a live actor there. Right. And it's how they're acting it out and kind of how they're giving the speech and how the is still this like speech that's supposed to speak to kind of like American expect, exceptionalism and kind of like giving that kind of nationalism push right so the tone of voice is like and then we conquered you know that that kind of that kind of voice um but the, the tone of the presentation and this kind of like rising music you know kind of was at odds with the content if you know what i mean right i mean it it's like that nat that nationalist tone right that complete celebration of american exceptionalism you know what i'm talking about you've all seen you know whatever um, uh, like all those movies, those kind of nationalist or patriotic movies have that rising kind of like national anthem-y kind of music that goes and supposed to make you like your heart fill with pride for your nation, you know, Independence Day speech, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and so the tone was there, but 
you know, increasingly becomes difficult to kind of maintain that tone, you know, because the, uh, the history of this country is so freaking complicated and violent and, and, you know, and filled with all sorts of like historic kinds of abuses. So, you know, so that's interesting, you know, it's, it's just kind of like how that played itself out. And, um, what was what was cool is a lot of the documents that are there and a lot of the displays as you kind of go through were i think more kind of you know allowed more of that complicatedness to come through and really you were highlighting some of the moves for change and and how some of the uh, uh you know that the history of the racism and sexism and kind of uh you know and white supremacy kind of how that flowed through the the um, the formation of this republic. So, you know, I don't know. So whatever. So that, that was kind of, that was just kind of interesting kind of moment to kind of experience there. Uh, it was the first time I had been there, but just to feel that kind of a little bit that, you know, that kind of disjuncture. So, so anyways, so, so that was, um, as we did on Friday. And then of course, you know, it was over the weekend, had some family stuff and house stuff and grocery shopping, all that kind of stuff, you know, and, so got out of here. And so in the midst of all that, anyways, that's a long way around saying in the midst of all that um, is uh, when I had forgot <laughs> to tweet out to let everybody know, hey, uh, we're not doing a show on Friday. So crazy. Um, yeah, Kirsten says uh, in, in terms of uh, Ashley Ehas, uh, it's the first time we ever had a Dem candidate ever get the thumbs up to announce so early. Uh, it's a good it's a sign of good changes to come for the uh, Bucks County Democratic Committee. They recognize 21st century uh, realities like fundraising needs to go against Fitzgerald. Uh, Fitz, I'm sorry, Fitzpatrick. Um, yes, yes, and uh, I, I do agree. I'll keep my fingers crossed that that's um, that that's what we're going to see. What's going to happen? Um, and I'm just going to hope that the money is not going to just go into ads. Um, it's going to go into building a ground game, right? Um, one of the things that we saw happen during the last round of elections. Uh, yes, it's true. Ashley Ehas did not win that election um, as a bunch of candidates, really good candidates, um, did not win their election. Uh, Gwendolyn Stoltz, for example, um, was an amazing candidate, uh, had an incredible ground game. Um, James Sersonsky did an awesome job as a campaign uh, guru for that one. Um, and the mistake that I hope that the Bucks County Democratic Committee does not make um, is to think that... Um, that it's just going to ignore all that organization. I mean, that's where the money needs to go. I mean, if you're going to be in this for the long haul to be able to kind of turn, um, you know, uh, the PA one, you're going to turn that blue, right? Then, you know, you need the ground game. Um, what you often hear from democratic, like, uh, like a democratic officials is that in order to beat Fitzpatrick, you know, you need $2 million in the back. You need $2 million, $2 million what you need to be competitive in this. Right. And, and, <laughs> What that, and I'm not saying money doesn't matter. Let's be clear, right? Um, but what I'm saying is that it's as if that $2 million by itself is what it kind of makes a candidate competitive um, as opposed to building real ground game. Now, one thing I will, will say you know, with Ashley Ehas, um, you know, her last campaign, um, early on, she was involved with what was happening and her campaign was kind of what was involved happening on the ground. She had a bunch of real awesome young folks that were going out knocking on doors and so on. Um, and, uh, you know, I hope there's more of that. So let's see. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, yes, I'm hopeful, um, but we shall see. Uh, we shall see. Um, one of the problems that we've had, and we've talked about on the show um, consistently over the years, is that, um, is that we haven't seen a candidate like Ashley Ehas basically do well and then kind of like, you know, continue to you know, come back, 
right? It was always this kind of last minute scramble, like, oh, who can we find to run? Who can we find to run? She seems like, you know, kind of legit candidate who's in it to run. So it's pretty um, awesome. Um, great. Oh, just thank you, Jenny. Jenny, just let me know that uh, Ashley Ehas is going to has an article. There's an Ehas article in tomorrow's Beacon. So check out the Bucks County Beacon tomorrow um, for uh, for that article. Um, that's fantastic. So that's all good news. So looking for a lot of good stuff. Um, and, you know, things are heating up. We got the primaries coming up in uh, um, May 16th. And um, boy, coming up fast. You know what I'm saying? It's coming up fast. So there we go. Um, so yeah, so I'd love to see, love to see what else we got. Um, other things, people going through people's minds tonight. I'd love to hear what's on your mind. I'll love to other things that we should let other people know about. Um, for me, the things that I had tagged for Friday's show that didn't happen <laughs> were, uh, you know, it's, we've seen that, you know, I, I look, you know, in some ways I could dig down into these articles and we could do this, but you know, we've been, we've been inundated with this. And a lot of people have been following these stories for sure. Um, but if you look at like these articles next to one another, right. These three, well, four articles or these four kind of issues that are happening right now. Uh, we had, you had the new report that came up from ProPublica exposing because Supreme court justice Clarence Thomas's uh, secret luxury trips, right. That were funded by kind of like, you know, uh, kind of mega donors, Right. Um, let me see. I was going to pull that up. Here we go. All right. So let's just look, let's just look at read a little bit of this. So Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas has accepted secret luxury trips from Republican mega donor Harlan Crow for more than two decades in an apparent violation of financial disclosure law. A ProPublica report revealed on Thursday. This is last Thursday. Thomas has vacationed on Crow's 162 foot super yacht, flown on the real estate developer's private jet, and spent time at the GOP donors' private resort and other exclusive retreats. ProPublica reported, um, citing documents and dozens of interviews. Thomas, the 74-year-old conservative associate justice who has served in the nation's highest court since 1991, has not reported the trips on his financial disclosure, disclosures as required by law, the nonprofit newsroom re reported. The investigation, this is, I'm reading from a CNBC article, so that just, you know, that's what I'm saying. The investigation offers more fuel to Thomas's critics who say that his refusal to recuse himself from cases touching on issues related to his wife's political work in conservative circles, including her involvement in schemes to overturn the 2020 election, poses a conflict of interest. Right? Ethics experts and ex-judges interviewed by ProPublica were incredulous. Thomas, quote, seems to have more completely disregarded his higher ethical obligations, um, unquote. Virginia Cantor, chief ethics counsel at the Watchdog Group crew, told the outlet, quote, when a justice's lifestyle is being subsidized by the rich and famous, it is absolutely corrodes public trust, unquote, um, Cantor said. And it kind of goes on. Right. And it documents all the stuff um, that, you know, has been kind of talked about and have people have been pointing out for quite some time. Um, and he doesn't need to do anything about it. There's no accountability. Right. There's and there's not going to be accountability. Um, maybe there'll be a lots of public pressure. I think that is the only thing that will bring any kind of accountability because, you know, he's not going to get impeached. No, he's got, you know, he's got no incentive to leave the court, right? Especially since the Republicans are so keen on making sure they keep that report or keep that um, kind of supermajority on the court. So there you go. So the question is, what will be done, right? Um, and how do we kind of deal with this? Right? So that's one thing. The second thing we saw was happen in Tennessee, right? So in Tennessee, we had, uh, there were three, initially there were three, um, two African-American men and a white woman, 
right? And uh, who were protesting uh, gun control or they're protesting for gun control um, uh, on the floor of the Tennessee House. And um, they had a bullhorn and they said, we need action on this. This, of course, is in the aftermath of the, uh, the mass shooting in Nashville, calling once again to, you know, you know, ban these assault weapons and stuff, you know, I was thinking about this today. It's like, you know, you know, like the NRA always like, you know, they, you know, you see these bumper stickers all the time. It's like, you know, you know, guns don't kill people. People kill people. Right. And I got my thinking though, people with guns kill people. Right. It's like you're missing, you're missing a connection there. Like, no, it's the people with the guns that kill people. Right. It's like, yeah, sure. It's like, you know, the whole idea, right. You know, the whole idea is that, uh, the gun is what facilitates the mass killing, right? That's the issue, right? And of course, there's people holding the guns, but that you know, people without the gun makes it a heck of a lot harder to kind of like kill a whole lot of people. It's like you know, it's like we 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 we, I don't know. We have this public discourse by just nonsense. I mean, it's absolute kind of nonsense. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. So so we shall see. We saw, well, anyways, the, the point was, okay, so you have that one, but ProPublica, look at Supreme Court Justice um, Thomas's stuff. If Tennessee House Republicans um, decide, ultimately vote to expel the two black representatives and, and not expel the white woman, right? And she was pissed off about that too as well. Like she's the only one who stood with, the, with them, so the three of them, right? Um, and then, you know, the, you know, whatever. It, it just... It, so they got they got voted out. They got kicked out of the house. It's only happened like twice, two other times in like you know, um, on the history in Tennessee. And what was one of the when they were kind of voting and having a discussion and the debate on whether to expel these two, one of them, one of the two, I'm forgetting which one of the ones it was, got up and spoke, and basically said, "We have got someone here in this chamber who is accused of sexual assault. We have someone that went through a litany of things. People brought up on charges. People kind of committing felonies. All this other kind of stuff, and they were not expelled." Well, because they brought, because they broke decorum, right? They broke decorum and the precious Tennessee Senate, like rules, which are, which are, which, you know, <laughs> whatever. They get wielded like a bat, right? To get rid of this stuff. It's expressive. And, you know, again, we, this is what we talked about, right? With, uh, with Patricia Roberts Miller and the show, right? In her book, Demagoguery and Democracy, right? We saw that. She talked about, like, this is what happens, when these kind of institutions get abused like this. So anyways, so here we go. Then we've got this story about the Catholic Church. And this is just absolutely devastating, right? And again, this is the kind of thing where people had talked about this for years and suspected things that were going on. And then people who were been abused were speaking up and they were silenced, right? Well, just in the Baltimore diocese, right? This new report came out and it showed that 150 priests had sexually abused more than 600 kids over 80 years. The church knew, the diocese knew, and they covered it up. I talked about, not. I didn't talk about this issue, uh, this specific one. We talk about this in one of my class, Rhetoric, Democracy, and Advocacy, right? We talk about these, like, you know, what are some of the rules uh, of, like, like, a democratic culture, right? One, there's fairness. Right. And that idea of that, if it applies to this group, it applies to this group. Right. Doesn't matter which which team they're on. 
right? If you break the law, you break the law, right? That's the kind of principle of fairness, right? But there's this other one too as well is that, you know, you check, and this is what, you know, Timothy Schneider talks about in his book on tyranny, you know, um, as well as Patricia Roberts Miller and demagoguery and democracy, right? The idea is that when you have institutions, right? One of the things that is what Timothy Schneider says, right? He says, pick an institution and defend it. Pick an institution that is kind of like uh, supports democracy and defend it, right? And you got to hold those institutions to be accountable to the principles by which they supposed to, that they supposedly operate in a democratic culture, right? And so, for example, if you take the example of journalism, right? Support journalism, right? Go ahead and support journalism, support journalism. Like, I mean, like New York Times, Washington Post. I don't mean just like progressive media. I mean, support journalism, right? And what does that mean? Does that mean that you just kind of stand by the New York Times no matter what they say? No, because you want to hold the New York Times, it's supposed to be the, the, the paper of record. You want to hold them to the principles of kind of investigative journalism. They're supposed to be working for us, not for the people of the State Department, not for the CIA, they're not supposed to kind of, they're supposed to be the ones that are not only just reporting what was said, but helping us understand what it means. So that we, as democratic citizens, as being in a democratic culture, have the information and knowledge and enough that we can begin to enact, we act upon our world, right? That's the whole idea. That's what they're supposed to do, holding the power accountable. And when they don't, you gotta hold them accountable, right? And, you know, everything that happened around, you know, Black Lives Matter and all this stuff, and we start seeing all the people start, you know, line up, Blue Lives Matter, no, Blue Lives Matter, you line up behind the cops, right? And they can say, you know, no matter what, no, we got to support the police, we got to support the police, we got to support the police, regardless, right? And, and, you know, and then when a cop goes out and just clearly kills someone, I mean, I mean, we've had, I mean, how many more cases do we need of absolutely 100% clear cases of murder being done? in the name of kind of like, you know, I'm a policeman and I get to do this, right? But the thing is, is that on the side, right, on the side of, of those most police cars, right, or many police cars at least, says, you know, protect and serve, right? And I think most people can get behind that, right? Most people can be, yeah, we would like to have somebody that can, can protect and serve, right? Now, maybe idealistically, we think like, okay, yes, ultimately, we want to be able to protect and serve each other and not having to have police with guns in order to, yes, 100%, but... You know, for the most part, right now, we want to make sure that, okay, we have people that are going to keep people safe. When you have police officers that go out and kind of murder people and they break all the rules, shutting off their, you know, their, like their body camps or whatever, you know, like do not follow kind of best practices. Do not act in a way that keeps everybody's life safe, not just ones that they, they want, not just white people's lives, but everybody's lives. Not just rich people's lives, but everybody's lives. And when they violate that trust, they need to be held accountable. And I've often said this is like, you know, here's what I here's what I never understand that drives me more badly than anything else. Not that there's bad people, right? There's there's bad people exist. I'm the kind of person who believes that bad people exist now. They existed all throughout history and they will continue to exist. And people will do bad things. Right? You're not going to kind of reach some utopia where everybody's like, oh, everybody's just good. No, I don't believe that. I just don't believe that. There's too much stuff in this world, too much contrary or evidence to, to say that's the case, right? So there's always going to be bad people, right? The question is, is what do we do with those bad people? 
what happens to those bad people? And then when bad people do things in the name, what happens, you know, do things in the name of an institution? What happens to that institution? You take the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church is like, you know, this is like always been the perfect example for me. And it's just the same thing as the cops, right? It's not just that there's a bad priest that does horrific, horrific things. It's that the people around that bad person, instead of saying, oh, if we want our institution, the church, to be worth what it's supposed to be or to, to operate in the kind of the way that it's supposed to, to follow its own moral codes, supposedly the Bible and God, right? Then that person needs to be needs to be turned into the authorities, right? And needs to be ousted. And we need to shout it from the rooftops because the the church is will be damaged if you allow if you protect those people. But it again and again and again and again, what it did, it covered it up and it enabled the abuse to continue. And all those people who knew, and look, I understand, right? If I'm a young priest and I look over here and I see that this abuse is going on, but I'm new to the priesthood and I'm just going to be worried about my job, my job. What's going to happen to me, me personally? It could hurt me, so therefore I'm going to allow that priest to hurt kids. Right? In the case of the Catholic Church, this is what I've always thought, right? In the case of the Catholic Church, if I'm a priest who so supposedly took vows to God, and I believe in those things deeply, so much that I'm devoting my life to that, then I've already said I'm willing to sacrifice other options in my life in order to serve this higher purpose. And what could be a more higher purpose than watching somebody next to me, somebody kind of that, that I work with, somebody that I know to be abusing kids. And yet they covered it up and the church threatened them and people cowered. And it wasn't just the priests, right? It was also the people that worked, were kind of civil servants that worked with the priests, civil servants, I forget what they call them, right? Well, people who are not kind of ordained and they didn't say anything. And so it goes on. Same thing happens to police. If the goal is to protect and serve, that we're supposed to trust the police, <clears throat> right? That when a police officer violates codes of conduct, violates procedures, right? And kills unarmed black people, right? Because that's primarily who they're killing. <clears throat> you want to get rid of that person. You want to get, get that person off the force, And you want to bring them to justice yourself as a police officer. <clears throat> because if you don't, it's going to damage the institution even more, right? That's the whole idea. But we have it again and again and again. The focus is, and our, you know, our media culture does not help it. We focus on the individual. We focus on the individual and not the system and not the structure. That's the same reason why it's so problematic for all these kind of like, you know, neo-white supremacists and kind of, you know, people defenders of, you know, traditional culture, whatever you want to say. The reason why these people are having such a like uh, such a freak out over things like DEI or kind of actually teaching real history with all the complexities. Because they don't want to think systemically, they want to keep you focused on individuals only. And because of that, we can't address kind of the, the gross inequities and kind of abuses and exploitations of capitalism. We can't deal with systemic racism. We can't deal with systemic sexism. We can't deal with even systemic abuse of kids. 
because we say, oh, I was a bad person, you know, but there's good priests. Oh, that was a bad cop, but there's good cops. So, so not, so no systemic or real changes. And very often those same institutions end up doubling down on what they've done before. It's about like, I mean, you literally you go through, oh, I'll say the last one too. And now you've got these new court rulings, right? <clears throat> this is probably like, you know, just this, just, I mean, just the past couple of days, right? The uh, new court rulings, like look to ban the kind of uh, abortion medication, uh, uh, mephipristone, right? As in two cases, you like the abortion pill, right? Uh, and two cases are likely headed to the Supreme Court. This is bad. Right, this this little piece from NPR, right? So access to a common abortion medication currently hangs in the balance in a pair of contradictory decisions by federal judges, setting the stage for the most significant legal action on abortion since the overturning of Roe v. Wade last year. Mephipristone is widely used across the United States to end pregnancy in the first 10 weeks of gestation. About half of all abortions nationwide are performed using mephipristone as the first of two of a two-pill regimen. The drug also commonly used. Um, the drug is also commonly used to help manage miscarriages. The name brand drug, um, Mefiprex, Mefiprex, was first approved by the Food and Drug Administration more than 20 years ago, and since then it has been used millions of times. And major medical groups say it is a strong has a strong safety record. A generic version was approved in 2019. Now the drug's future is in jeopardy. A federal judge in Texas issued a preliminary injunction that undoes the FDA's approval of Mefipristone nationwide beginning this Friday. This is the past Friday. Meanwhile, a competing ruling of Washington state could limit the Texas injunctions reach, right? So there's this other case here that's kind of like, you know, not as extreme, right? So what this means is that now you've got two federal court decisions that are kind of in conflict with each other. They, they don't agree with it. So that means it's going to have to be settled. This is what at least most of the reporting is saying by the Supreme Court. And you know where the Supreme Court stands on abortion because, as that article just said, they just undid Roe v. Wade. Right? So remember, leave it up to the states. Remember that whole thing? Remember that whole thing about, yes, we're going to, you know, make sure, yes, but they'll still be able to get medical uh, medical abortions through these pills, mefepristone. Remember that? It's less than a year ago. And this is already... the shoe is already dropped. So now it becomes here. So as of today, there's no official change into what um, Americans access to, uh, to mephipristone is, but that could change as soon as this Friday when a preliminary injunction issued by uh, U.S. District uh, Judge Matthew Kazmark, Kazmark, or Kaxmark is set to take effect. The Texas lawsuit filed by a coalition of abortion rights opponents raised questions about the process by which the FDA originally approved the drugs in 20. So they're going after this kind of procedural thing, right? So there you go. So by Friday. So by Friday, we may know if there's going to be an injunction published. That means access to... Mephipristone would be stopped nationally. So much for leaving it up to the states, right? It's crazy. So you put these things together, right? You put those four things together. 
right? You've got abuses of power, taking of bribes, undisclosed gifts by from kind of from billionaires, mega donors, right? From court justice with no uh, with uh, uh, Clarence Thomas, no consequence. Tennessee House Republicans basically use their power to expel black representatives because they don't want to talk about gun violence. Catholic Church shows that as an institution is incapable and has been incapable of, of telling the truth about its abuses for here. And now it's all coming to for, and this is kind of continues goes on. And so that legacy is there. That's part of our lack of systemic knowledge, our systemic a, a, a willingness to address things systemically. And now we have kind of another attack on kind of women and, 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 and people can have kids, another attack upon them coming down here. These are all pointing in such bad directions. I don't know. I don't know. And you know, what we've been dealing with here locally too, uh, and this is where it all folds in, right? You start to see these, you know, you start to see these, uh, you know, boots drop. Lack of accountability for Clarence Thomas. Lack of accountability for uh, Tennessee Republicans who are going to use their power to kind of literally overturn the will of the people by kicking people out of office because they're talking about guns. Long-term, historic, systemic abuse by institutions, whether we're talking about the Catholic Church, we're talking about the police department, corporations, oil and gas industry when it comes to climate change, no accountability. And now we're seeing the kind of persistent march forward of taking away more of our rights. Mephipristone is just, just one of them, but it's a pretty big one. Over 50% of the population will be impacted. It's a nice little chunk if you're a right-wing Republican. And then right here, we're dealing with book bans, right? <laughs> As we've been talking about. Um, you know, I think it's pretty cool. We've got, uh, yeah, that's exactly right, Jenny. Rise of Christian nationalism. And that's, that's what it is. I mean, you know, people... People like to think about this as, or would like to think about this, I think, as, um, as something that's uh, a scare tactic or something. Like, we talk about Christian nationalism because it's like, oh, we're being extreme, or oh, we're being, you know, trying to get people riled up. And, like, I, I don't know. This is evidence. This is not even... I mean, what we're looking at here is the Christian nationalist playbook, right? Remember, we talked, we've talked before, and we had um, um, Jenny Cohen on, right, to talk about this, about the seven mountains, right? The right-wing Christian nationalism there, right? going after all these key institutions, going after education, going after uh, the courts, going after, you know, one institution after another, the media, in order to kind of, like, bring their Christian nationalist ideals um, to bear upon the rest of us. And they've got a head start like you wouldn't believe. Like you wouldn't believe. I mean, last week, uh, you know, when we talked about, when we talked with um, um, Jeff Charlotte um, about his new book, The Undertow on the Signal last week, or I should say when Cyril did, 
Um, I got to listen to the conversation, obviously, because I'm producing the show. But um, that show, I mean, what he talks about is, is um, as Cyril said, horrifying. Right? Uh, we put in a, uh, uh, a cold start, like sound drop, right at the beginning of the show, right, where uh, uh, Jeff Barlett, you know, basically says, like, look, there's those of us who have, uh, like, liberals and progressives and even centrists, for that matter, right, um, I have been operating as if, like, we're the we, right? We're the normal. And there's a, you know, there's this contingency that are the, kind of the extreme, and they're kind of, like, and they're, they're, like, way so far out of the mainstream, whatever, like this. But he says, like, Tucker Carlson, that's the mainstream now. We've got it wrong, is his argument, right? You got to you got to listen to that podcast. I'm telling you, um, it's so good on that score. And if you think about it, look, Fox News, Fox News is the most watched cable news show of any show. It's got Tucker Carlson's show has the most viewers and gets the highest ratings. Does that represent every American? No, but it does tell you that there's a lot more of these folks that are kind of, they might not be kind of dyed-in-the-wool Christian nationalists, but they sure as hell are sympathetic towards it. Right? You know, we, we I think it was a couple of weeks ago, we quoted this report from, I think it was Brookings Institution and someone else, where there was tracking some of this. It was like this uh, religious, critical religious report or something like this. I can't remember. But, um, and it looked at, you know, the vast majority of Republicans are either sympathetic toward Christian nationalism or kind of like, or either, or, or either adherence to Christian nationalism or sympathetic towards it. So, well, I might not personally not believe all that stuff, but you know, that person's got a good agenda or yeah, I'd vote for them. America has kind of turned away, right? It's, it's like the soft white, the soft white supremacists and the kind of like the hardcore ones. You know, for the people that are, you know, that say I'm kind of like, well, you're dismissing all Republicans. I say, look, I'm just saying, I'm just looking at the evidence of what's of what keeps on coming out. And even if you're saying, like, even if you're saying the, the say the majority of Republicans are either adherents to Christian nationalism or sympathetic towards it, based upon those criteria, that's the majority still, right? Yeah, I'm not saying there's not Republicans out there that are like are against that stuff. But just the fact is they're not in the majority. And we're also dealing with a kind of a national culture in which the most highly rated news program is the kind of soft white supremacist, supremacist Tucker Carlson. I mean, I don't know what you need. So, so I was happy this week, too, as well, if you want to talk about something that's happening. Um, I should also say, yes, uh, Jenny Stevens also says that uh, we got the uh, Bucks, uh, Central Bucks and the Penridge School Board meetings this week, um, which promised to be um, filled with more not-so-good news. Um, but we'll talk about those maybe this Friday uh, after we see what the results of this uh, the school boards are. I know there's a big one on Tuesday when you have uh, Jean Kwok um, coming out there um, after, you know, her book, Girl in Translation, was uh, was um, put on the challenged list. 
Here's reporting from uh, Chris Ullery in the uh, Bucks County Courier, Courier Times. Basically said is another renowned author of a challenge book uh, in the Central uh, Central Bucks School District will be making a stop in Doylestown for a Tuesday school board meeting. Gene Kwok's uh, 2010 debut model uh, novel, Girl in Translation, is one of at least 60 titles challenged under a library policy passed in a 6-3 vote last summer targeting alleged sexually explicit content. Kwok had previously confirmed that she would provide a statement for former school board member Tracy Suits to read on her behalf. Um, as Kwok was scheduled to give a talk in Florida State University next week. So she's uh, working with Tracy Suits on this one. She says, I'm doing this because I feel like I'm in a strong enough position to be someone who can stand up and talk about this and to say, listen, while the instinct to protect children may be commendable, what you're actually doing is something that is atrocious and very dangerous. Yep. Especially because you say here, that book, it tells the story of a young girl that immigrated with her mother from China to Brooklyn, New York, and lives a double life as a student by day and a sweatshop worker at night to help support her family. Right? It's the kind of stories that we need complex stories of our history that allow us to kind of identify with kind of a much broader sets of experiences. Yeah. Then we have continued, you know, this, this stuff is keep on going through Perkyoman Valley schools um, also voting to ban a bunch of books. Right. And now you have students organizing, right. They staged a walkout to protest uh, the moves to ban books in their schools. Something else. Something else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I got a couple things that I want to just make sure. Uh, one thing, you know, I want to talk a little bit about what's happening at, at uh, not so much what's happening at Kutztown University, but a little bit about what's happening, I guess, to our discourse around, like, and I, I don't even know who I mean by R, because, you know, if you're, you know, it's people who are already in institutions or something like this are the ones that, especially people in leadership positions who just use language and they, they just vacate the language from its historical and, and material consequences and, 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 and histories. Right. I mean, just, I'll talk about it in a second, but I want to make sure that people know like this Saturday, right. Let's not forget this Saturday, um, April 15th. Um, remember, uh, we had a, we had a show here. We had Alan Gratz on the show, um, talk about his um, new book, two degrees. Um, we also had Robin Underwood on the show. Who's, um, uh, kind of one of the heads of coffee, which is Kutztown organized um, to protect educational ex excellence. I knew I'd get it or to, yeah, that's, a, I'm saying P is a P, F. Uh, anyways, but the Kutztown group, it's a parents group, uh, parents and community group coffee, which is basically kind of like trying to kind of take back the school board from the kind of right wing extremists who have occupied it there. Well, you remember they, they banned um, uh, Alan Gratz's book, um, two degrees because it dealt with climate change, right? Um, well, um, Alan Gratz will be in Kutztown um, this Friday, I'm sorry, this Saturday for the Kutztown University Children's Literature Conference. And um, <clears throat> the idea initially, right, was to have uh, um, to have the the Kutztown University, I'm sorry, Kutztown School District, Kutztown Area School District, middle school students read his book. And while he was in town, they'd actually get to meet him and things like this, right? Well, the um, now, since his book has basically effectively been taken off or kind of been removed from um, this program that where middle school students were going to read his book, what he's going to do, he's going to give two events um, at the uh, Firefly Bookstore. 
in Kutztown on Saturday, April 15th. Um, and one will be, I think it's at one thirty. I was going to try to pull it up right now. If I, yeah. So at one to 2 PM on, on Saturday, the 15th at Firefly bookstore at two seventy one West main street in downtown Kutztown. You just look it up, but Firefly bookstore in Kutztown, you can head out there. Uh, from one to two, he's going to do uh, a book signing, right? It'll be a kind of quick one. He's got a little break from the conference. He'll come down, he'll do a book signing. And then at 6.30 um, to 8 o'clock and Saturday night, uh, Alan Gratz will be there at, at Firefly Bookstore once again. Um, and he will be interviewed um, by, um, oh, God, I'm spacing your name. So it feels so awful. But um, from the, the 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 young woman who started the uh, the teen band book club, right? Um, and will he's she's going to interview him, um, and he'll be there for a kind of discussion, both about his book, but also about the um, you know kind of the banding and so on. And uh, they the red wine and blue had helped um, raise enough money to um, donate two hundred books. 200 copies of his book to be able to hand out to uh, middle school students. Um, they've been handing them out already um, in, the head, in the lead up to there. So you've got this awesome event, right, um, where Alan Gratz is going to be in town and he's going to be um, speaking, making himself available for everybody um, who, you know, in the midst of this controversy. So I don't want to forget to kind of mention that tonight. Uh, I'll mention it again, again on Friday, uh, but I'm really looking forward to meeting him. I'm um, looking forward to my daughter to having the opportunity to meet him. Um, it's going to be pretty great. But the last thing I want to say tonight and um, bring us to a close is, is a little bit about, uh, I know I'm all over the place tonight. I'm sorry. It's just been, uh, it's been one of those, it's just one of those days. I'm so freaking tired today. It's, it's pretty crazy. Um, but um, so Kutztown University is going through another round of austerity, right? Um, and it's not just Kutztown University. As you know, we've, we've seen uh, the state system of higher education consolidate six universities into two. Um, now those, those universities are incredible amounts of debt. Um, and like, because guess what? Consolidation doesn't save money. It costs money. And sure enough, the money did not come through in this budget um, to actually cover that debt. So it's going to have further impacts, but you also have a chancellor, um, chancellor Daniel Greenstein, who is basically, you know, says we're transforming higher education and really what it's just, it's just another program of austerity. Um, and he puts together these numbers, which are designed to kind of help, like help keep the university healthy, but really what just, it's about kind of eliminating programs, right? And elim and getting rid of faculty members and downsizing, you know, it's the same old, same old thing. It's just dressed up in fancy Silicon Valley talk. So there was a, uh, an email that came from uh, uh, Lauren Baston Arnold, who's the provost of Kutztown University that was sent out to faculty members. And she was kind of addressing this issue. And I just want to read you a little bit about this and talk a little bit about it. So, um, and they never mentioned the programs that are being put in a moratorium, but here you go. So as part of the important work of maintaining sustainable and a vibrant campus, we need to engage in an ongoing discussion regarding our program array and the changing needs and desires of a student populations over time. This work must include both consideration and of programs that our traditional student population are more or less interested in pursuing, as well as looking for opportunities to serve more individuals in the region and beyond with high quality educational opportunities in the bachelor, bachelorette, post-bachelorette, graduate and non-credit levels. As we look to our, our, our current programs and program health, the things we considered through a combination of how they unfolded was different in each case. They included 
and you look at graduation rates and a bunch of like, there's a list here. I'm not going to bore you with all the, the, with the full list, but here's, what's interesting about this, right? Is that, um, then she says, okay, after we looked at the overall major enrollment, uh, in each case, there was significant increase likely. And they start talking about these numbers things. But then again, here's the point. Having completed these analysis and after a series of discussions, the decision was made to move several undergraduate programs in a moratorium. Those programs have been notified and engaged in discussion on the related deans. For these programs, associated minors will remain and so on, right? So, you know, I love, you gotta love the passive voice, right? You gotta love the passive voice. And then she says like, I regret such an action is necessary. And I know that it's professionally painful to the faculty and support these programs and care deeply about the students of them. It is my hope that in the fall, we can begin to consider what opportunities might exist in areas connected to the programs involved. I mean, just like, and what they basically mean by that is they're going to basically, oh, whoever left, they're going to try to lump them all into one department, right? And kind of like have them teach like some random gen ed classes until those those faculty are so tired about it and they retire and then they can finally kind of close that stuff all out. That's really what, that's what's happened before, right? But what's interesting about this, you know, one, there's the passive voice. Like we, you know, this, these, these things happen. What's absolutely, or this is not her fault in particular, right? Um, but it is it is the administration at Kutztown University. And look, you probably have heard the same kind of stuff in your own kind of business, your own organization. It's the same thing over and over again, right? There's a complete disregard of the conditions which got us to this point, right? So some of the programs that are being put in moratorium are also programs, right, that the administration has refused to issue replacement lines for after faculty members have retired or left to take other jobs, right? So there's a reason why there's fewer and fewer Spanish members. It's because they can't offer the classes to teach the class, to, to, you know, to teach in their program because they don't have the faculty to teach it. And the counseling program at Kutztown University, or the counselors, right? It's a faculty counseling center, right, for, for students. <clears throat> they no longer have a faculty member because the university refused to hire the people as replacements and made the conditions so dire. So what, the, what, this, what this, you know, email to, to faculty says is like, well, look, we just, we're just looking at the numbers here and we just, oh, look at this poor program. It's not doing so well. We hate to get rid of it, but what are you going to do? It's, you know, we're trying to put the research. As long as I've been at Kutztown, I mean, read anything I've written about the history of my university or, or of Pashu over the past 10 years. I've seriously. It's been shock doctrine politics. This is the, the it's like, you slowly make conditions worse so that faculty leave, students are frustrated, so that you can eventually limit the program. Instead of just coming in and saying, boop, nope, we're gonna drop the act, we're gonna cut these programs, and because that's what we wanna do, no. <clears throat> they're just gonna like bleed it out of all of us and pretend that they're doing it because they care. There's no accountability. And here's, here's the thing, and this actually, so our, our, our union president, Ken Mash, was uh, at Kutztown not too long ago. Last week, I think, we think, uh, oh no, it was March 9th. <clears throat> Let me see if I can find this. So 
<clears throat> one of the things he said, these are notes from another faculty member. That, so one of the things that he said, he talked about how the system was asking for not getting extra money to pay down the debt at Penn West, what I was talking about before, $33 million, possibly with another $20 million added that is dragging the system down. This is legacy debt from around 2010 when enrollments were soaring. Listen to this. You've heard me talk about this on, the program, on this program before. When enrollments were soaring and administrators built new dorms and other buildings, bad investments. At Clarion, Edinburgh, and Mansfield, they have empty dorms. Our message has to be we are state-owned universities. If a university can't pay, creditors will go after the system and then the state. We depend on the Commonwealth, and it is time for the Commonwealth to pick up some of the debt because those bad decisions were made long ago by administrators. And students should not be paying the debt, net debt, and neither should faculty members be having to lose their jobs and livelihood because of it. Just when we were talking about at the top of the show, there's no accountability for the people who have done this. And I remember shouting for the rooftop at the time, like, and like people getting pissed off at me because I was mad that there weren't enough people that were bad. When I was bringing it to our, our statewide union, when I was bringing it to kind of like our local union, saying like, look, it's not like this is not a force of nature. As a matter of fact, when we exposed the fact that Kutztown wasn't in crisis, as the former president Savio used to say over and over again, oh, we're in crisis. No, we found out that Kutztown was swimming in money. They said that we we're $6 million or something like this into debt. Turns out, no, we had $29 million in the bank to do whatever we wanted to. They were hoarding money so those administrators could do what they wanted with the university. That was happened statewide. That <clears throat> was happening locally. We had Colleen Bradley, right? Former, you know, <laughs> vice president of administration of finance at Westchester University who blew the whistle on all this stuff, had the documents, had the paper trail, and nobody paid consequences for it, except for Colleen Bradley who lost her job. No one stood up for her. We did a documentary. We did, we sat, we interviewed her and her lawyers never accountability and no one has ever disputed the facts that she brought to the table her case was brought to court but guess what her case her case was brought to the court but the court decided no look we we can't get it because we don't believe that she was a whistleblower because she didn't re go run to the media and tell about it she tried to kind of like get her institution to change she started working up you know step by step by step she started going forward and basically saying, hey, look, I'm going to go to my superiors. Oh, they're not, they seem to be in on it. I'm going to go to their superiors. They said, well, because you didn't blow the whistle publicly, then your case doesn't count. You don't get whistleblower protection. And as a result, the courts never had to hear her case. Jenny, you say, why won't the union get involved? Well, look, Colleen Bradley, when 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 ABSCUF, as of statewide union, when ABSCUF actually commissioned a report to expose the shenanigans that was happening around, like like across the uh, across the state system, these kind of like unethical accounting practices, Colleen Bradley came and testified on their behalf. Any hearing, 
she showed up to support Abscuff's case. I argued with our state leadership about why it wasn't getting more involved. And to this day, the best answer I got is like, well, we have to think about the entire system as a whole. Whatever the hell that means. I could tell you what I think it means. This is what happens when people operate from a place of fear, is what I believe. And when you operate from when you think public relations is politics. Because let me lay it out for you. Here's, here's This is what it was. Is that what was happening is, this, is administrators were keeping two sets of books. And they were consulting with the chancellor's office in Harrisburg. And the chancellor's office in Harrisburg was showing them how to do it. Right? Colleen Bradley, I mean, be happy to send people the link again. I just aired it over Thanksgiving break. I thought over Christmas break, maybe. Again. And basically what it shows, they were going to politicians and they were telling faculty members and students that everything was in crisis. But the truth of the matter was, is it wasn't. The truth of the matter was, is that they were, quote-unquote, spending money on paper. So in other words, they had these, these you know, projects that they wanted, the administrators wanted. They had things that they wanted to control at their institutions. One of them is they wanted to reduce the number of faculty members. <clears throat> and then there was these special <coughs> beautifications of, uh, uh, of, of their campuses that they thought was going to bring in more students. <clears throat> So they spent it by taking this chunk of money from the education fund and putting it into the bank account and saying, oh, that's going for the future project. It appears on the balance sheet as a cost. And they were saving, 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 saving money while they were telling politicians and while they were telling the public and while they were telling us faculty and students that they were in crisis. We had no money. But meanwhile, when they would go to the creditors, have to get a credit rating, they would show them the other set of books to make sure they got good stuff, right? It's disgusting. <clears throat> so the concern was, if we expose this, right, if this was pushed too hard in the public, then because the Republicans dominated the state legislature, right, <clears throat> they would look at it and they would say, oh, this look, the state has a lot of money. Wait, these state system schools do have a lot of money? It's just faculty complaining then. It's because faculty want too much. And people were worried, this is my belief, that if that we couldn't tell the story. Right? Basically what it was is that the media would harp on this, the Republican politicians would harp on this, and they would say, see, greedy faculty members are lying to us. I had to talk with lawyers about this, right? Colleen Bradley's lawyers, I'm trying to help them understand what was happening. Because they thought we were lying too as well. We as faculty. I'm like, no. The lies that they're telling are being used to cut faculty members too. 
It's been hurting our programs. It doesn't go in our pockets. It goes in theirs and their legacy pockets. But people were too afraid to try to tell that story. It's not an easy story to tell. I grant you that. So the concern was if that got out, then they, they would be used that story that the, you know, certain schools hiding money would be used to shut down particular schools and colleges, right? Well, it's happened anyways, right? It just took an extra few years. And what kills me is now we see the acknowledgement. See, they made the bad decisions back then, right? Yep. <clears throat> but there's not going to be any accountability. And it's frustrating. <clears throat> yeah, Jenny, I'm with you. It says PSEA refuses to get involved with the public school issues. I, I, I don't understand it. I've said this on this show so many different times. I think <clears throat> I don't understand that mentality of unions. I mean, it is not the it is not the history of unions that I was part of. And I know that as I say this, there's going to be people that are going to be hate me for it. But whatever, go for it. Show me that I'm wrong. We don't have the truth on our side. We're not willing to tell the uh, the hard truth. Then, then what the hell are we doing? Right? Anyways. All right. I've gone on longer than I wanted to tonight. I know that I've, uh, that uh, my daughter and uh, <laughs> my wife are itching to watch something down here. And of course, my little studio is not really a studio. It's just a little corner of the basement. So uh, <clears throat> I'm going to have to hand over this space now <laughs> for here. So anyways, everybody, listen, I really appreciate it. I'm sorry I'm kind of a little rambly and ranty tonight, um, but I am tired and frustrated. And um, um, <clears throat> is what it is. Um, good news is we got some great stuff coming up. We got some good folks coming on the show uh, pretty soon. I've got a, you know, kind of got like two, three balls up in the air at this point. I'm just keeping my fingers crossed that they all don't say, okay, this date. And I'm not, I have to kind of figure who I'm going to <laughs> the schedule when. So hopefully we're going to work out. We're going to have some new announcements for uh, some guests coming up. Looking forward to it. Um, we're going to have to start talking about the, uh, the primaries coming up soon. Uh, definitely the summertime is going to be focused on a lot of what's happening at uh, municipal elections um, and the organizing for 2024. It's going to be a big year. Um, but you know, once again, I want to thank everybody here, uh, everybody who's here now, everybody who's listening to the show, everybody's listening to the podcast, uh, for all your support, um, kind of over the course of, uh, you know, the years since we started this thing. Um, and there's so much more I want to do. And, um, I'm hoping that I'm going to, that you're going to be able to be here for as part of doing it. Um, I'm hoping that, um, I'm going to be able to, you know, keep it going. So. Thank you all. Um, thank you all for your support. Thank you for your time. Thank you for tuning in tonight. And uh, listen, uh, if you know um, somebody who hasn't heard of this show yet, share it with them. Let them know about it. Tell them why you want to listen to it. Make sure you leave us that five-star review um, on your whatever podcast catcher you've got, right? Um, and, let, and, you know, leave the comments. Let everybody know why is it that you get this five-star review? Why do you like the show, right? And if you're watching this on YouTube, listen to it on YouTube, make sure you hit that subscribe button, like the stream for the show, <clears throat> hit that notification bell so you know every time we go live. Um, even if you are not watching the YouTube stream every time, even if you don't listen to every single podcast, those ratings, that subscription and stuff like that helps other people find the show, right? It helps kind of support the work that we're doing here. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, and if you want to become a patron for the show, you can just head on over to patreon.com slash RC Press. You become a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Um, that's what keeps us going here, folks. Uh, lots of little folks uh, stepping forward, giving what they can. 
Um, so we all in this together and help uh, kind of support independent progressive media um, kind of throughout Bucks County. So there you have it. All right, everybody. Um, we will see you again on Friday. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Until then, uh, have a good week. Uh, keep up the fight. Um, keep up the amazing work that all of you are doing. And uh, talk to you soon. See ya. I guess I'll fly away now